In this brief epistle from Jude, who identifies himself as a servant of Christ and the brother of James, we are encouraged to stand fast when the world is encroaching on the church. And uh, he, he was addressing just exactly what the United Methodist Church has been going through for the last 40 years and what we are seeing in our nation uh, for the last 40 years, a secularization uh, in our church where and in our country where God is just forgotten. That's what's been happening. He begins his uh, epistle by saying, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Then he expresses his concern. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt it the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, as he begins, he encourages us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once handed down to the saints. There is a pure faith which has been handed down through the ages from the apostles all the way to us. And for that faith, we are supposed to earnestly contend. It says, uh, well, some of the uh, synonyms for contend are assert, maintain, hold, claim, uh, argue, uh, profess, affirm, aver, avow, insist, state, declare, pronounce, plead. And he warns us, as he was warning the people way back then, that apostasy uh, was going to come, and we were told that it would come. Now, apostasy is whenever a people falls away from God. And as he's talking about that, he says, but ye beloved, and he's talking to believers, those beloved by God, but you, this is what you're supposed to do. You godly people loved by God, this is what you're supposed to do in a time of apostasy and falling away. And then he lists seven different things there that I just want to go uh, through with you uh, quickly. First of all, building up yourselves in your most holy faith. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, building up yourselves in your most holy faith means that you, first of all, study the word of God. It's my conviction that since God gave us 66 books, 
He meant for us to study all 66 of them, not just John, the third chapter or the 14th chapter of John. You don't just pick and choose. You can take things out of context. And the Bible is the greatest commentary on the Bible that you will find. And it's got to be taken as a whole. You've got to look at it all. You can't just pick one or two scriptures and base your faith on that. It all fits together. And it's why it has been handed down to us as it has. So all, well, well, Peter in his second epistle, uh, writing of apostasy coming, says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. There are a lot of people that want to just say, well, my Bible says, or my Bible doesn't say that. It's the same Bible, and it's not for private interpretation. There's more to it than that. You cannot just pull out one or two little verses, as I said, and think you have a good knowledge of the Bible or something to live by. It's a tragedy to build a system of doctrine based on just a few isolated verses drawn from the scriptures. Reminds me of the story of President Lincoln. He was having his portrait painted and the artist kept shifting around and shifting President Lincoln around, trying to get at an angle so that the wart on his face wouldn't show. And finally, after he had him adjusted to his satisfaction, he said, Mr. Lincoln, how do you want me to paint you? And Lincoln said, paint me just as I am, wart and all. And that's just it. There are parts of God's word that you will not enjoy reading. And those are probably the parts you need to read the most. There are sections that will step on your toes and uh, that you'd like to avoid. But we can't do that because it's all God's word. But today it's necessary to build ourselves up in our most holy faith because these are days of apostasy. Your most holy faith doesn't refer just to your own personal faith, though. Rather, it is the faith, it is the body of truth which has been given to us in the word of God and through the church. When the church first came into existence, it was called the Apostles' Doctrine. And uh, of this, the theologian and commentator Mayer writes, The faith here is called most holy because it comes to us from God and reveals God to us. And because it is by its means that man is made righteous and enabled to overcome the world. Now, in trying to understand this faith, we use four different tools or gifts, you might want to call them. John Wesley uh, utilized all four of them so much so that Albert Outler, a theologian uh, that I 
had the uh, honor of knowing at one point. He uh, called it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. He's the one that introduced it to us. Later on, he remarked that he wished that he never had because the United Methodist Church took the Wesleyan quadrilateral and misused it. And that's what brought us to the place that we found ourselves at this past week. The quadrilateral, that means there's four sides, just like a box. And those four sides are scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. I just always remember the acronym REST, R-E-S-T, reason, experience, scripture, tradition. But reason is never first. Experience is never first. Tradition is never first. Scripture is always first. That's where you start is with the Bible. John Wesley, even though he wrote many, many books himself and read profusely, proclaimed that he was actually the man of one book. And in one of his silences, where is that book? Give me that book. And he took his Bible. And this is the foundation from which our faith today comes and to which we need to refer over and over again. Scripture is first. Tradition is second. And tradition isn't, well, we ain't never done it that way before. You know, not that kind of tradition. You know, that banner, it's invisible, but it's over every church I have ever served. You know, we ain't never done it that way before. Uh, people always want to keep on doing things. But, and that's in a way could be called tradition, you know. But the thing is, tradition in the theological sense, is referring to that faith and those practices which have been handed down to us since the church began. And in this sense, the Bible being the word of God is a part of our rich tradition. You see, it's deep. It's much more. It's more spiritual than just uh, a tradition where one thing's just handed down for, to another with no thought behind it or no, no meaning behind it. You reminds me, I've probably shared this with you before, about the woman that uh, all the time she was growing up, her mom always cut the very end of the ham off before she cooked it. And so when she got married, every time she'd fix a ham, she'd cut the end of it off. And her husband asked her one day, why are you doing that? I said, well, my mom always did it. And this is just the way you're supposed to cook a ham. You cut that end off of it. I said, well, I've never seen it. Not everybody does it that way. Well, this is what you're supposed to do. It. So the next time she got was back home, she asked her mom, said, mom, why do we cut the end of the ham off before we cook it? And she said, honey, I always cut the end of the ham off because uh, I didn't have a pan that was big enough to put it in without the, it being, the, the end being on, cut off of it. You've got a nice size pan. You don't have to do that. Sometimes tradition can be blind and ultimately we pick up on the wrong things and pass them on. But this is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the tradition of the church, the tradition of faith. Uh, Another experience, when we talk about experience, 
We're not talking about just our own personal experience, although our personal experience becomes a part of it. Experience in a theological sense is the experience again of the body of Christ through the centuries. And we wind up reaffirming that experience in our own lives. The fact that Jesus said you have to be born again and we discover that whenever we come to him in repentance and true faith, we find that we are new creatures in him. We experience that. And so our experience confirms the experience of the saints through the ages, the believers through the ages. It goes together. And then finally, reason. Yes, you were given a brain. And you are supposed to use that brain. And uh, sometimes you will find people leading you astray. Sometimes you will find uh, that you're in situations that you've never uh, encountered before. And this is where you, you use your brain to use these other three uh, parts of the quadrilateral to understand what the Lord's will is for you in this situation. Well, in uh, the last few years, we've had those people that have been trying to pull us away from the holy faith, this most holy faith, and make our church one that encouraged lawlessness. And uh, as I said last week, we don't want to be a body that is going to cause people to stand before the Lord and be shocked when he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And this is going to be after they have said, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And then he's going to say, I never knew you. There are those people that creep in to God's church and try to lead others astray. Our church finally got to that point, that line of demarcation where it was black or white. There was no gray. And we had to say, this is where the line is, folks. And our church did that. And uh, so anyway, but this practicing of lawlessness. This has haunted me for two weeks because lawlessness means sin. Lawlessness means wickedness, but it also means disregarding the law. And in Romans 13, 1, we're told to be submissive to the authorities that are put over us because they've been placed over us by God. And then in 1 Samuel 15, 23, we're told that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idol worship. Large portions of our church need to confess and ask forgiveness from God and from others for practicing lawlessness because that is what has brought many of those who are expressing anguish and pain over this decision to be where they are. They were tricked by church leaders 
into thinking that their sin didn't matter and both leaders and congregations have disregarded the laws of our book of discipline. It is those leaders and congregations that bear the great responsibility for the painful place that many find themselves in today. Instead of telling them of our church's stance and attempting to bring them to repentance and new transformed life in Christ, instead they deceived them. Now let me tell you, better a little wailing and gnashing of teeth right now than before the judgment seat of Christ. It's the same with the pain and death we're called to consider in our border policy. In the past years, our national leaders have been practicing lawlessness and disregarding the laws of our land. People have been deceived into thinking our laws didn't matter, and they do. There's a right and legal way to enter our country. There's a right and legal way, a lawful way to enter the ministry of the United Methodist Church. There is a right way to enter the kingdom of God, and it's not by ignoring God's word, but by embracing it. When you encourage others to practice lawlessness, you cause them great damage. You cause great harm, not just to yourself, but to others as well. Jude moves on, and then he talks about the next thing that we need to be doing is praying in the Spirit. Now, praying in the Spirit is different from just handing God a grocery list of gimme, 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 and it's not the same as deciding what God ought to do and trying to get him to do it. Praying in the Holy Spirit means that we pray by means of the Holy Spirit and in his presence and with his presence in us. You see, we are dependent on him. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. You and I actually don't know what to pray for, and sometimes we may know we need to pray for something and we don't even know how to put it into words. And this is whatever we need to pray in the Spirit. Now, Whenever we are harboring sin, bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, and self-centeredness in our hearts, we are barring any room for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And it's only when we get these things out of the way through repentance and confession and opening our lives up to Him that His Holy Spirit can come in and dwell in us and pray through us and help us when or with our prayers. Jude then goes on and gives us a couple of more things that we need to be doing as believers in these days of apostasy. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, this ties in with the things that I just mentioned about praying in the Spirit. Keep short accounts with Him. Confess your sins 
and reconcile with him when you find that you've offended him. Let me put it this way. You can't keep God from loving you. He does love you. But you can put up an umbrella or a roof or a barrier between you and him so that you will not feel the warmth of God's love. Adam and Eve hid from God because of their sin. Their sin placed a barrier between their hearts and his. Jude is saying, keep yourselves out there in the sunshine of God's love. Let his love flood your heart and life. This is needed in these days of apostasy. Next, he says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Notice what the Jews, what Jude says is looking for the mercy. The word looking is the Greek word prosdechomai, which means to expect or to wait for. The Lord wants us to live in an attitude of expectancy for his soon return. At the time of the rapture, I'm expecting to leave this world and I hope it will happen during my lifetime, but I will be going out because of his mercy, not because of who I am. If it depended on who I am, I wouldn't make it. Then he says, on some who are in doubt, have compassion. Now, there are a great many good, sincere people today who have questions. They have honest doubts, and you need to be patient with them. Remember, there was a time whenever you had questions that needed answering. You have found your answers, and your time of doubt, and your experience of doubt, and the answers that you got can now help those who are still having doubts. You can have compassion on them, and you can help them to get through their doubt and into the wonderful place of being uh, just right before God. Next, he says, and save others with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, this refers to sinners uh, whom we consider uh, just hopeless. It seems impossible if they'll ever be saved, and yet we don't know how close those people may be to the truth. Sometimes they may be a lot closer to the truth than someone that looks like they're okay with God. Jude admonishes us not to give them up. He says, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Wow, what a statement. It reminds me of Lot and the da his daughters and his wife, and they were in Sodom, and the, the Lord had sent messengers to get them out of there, and Lot just kept dragging his uh, feet and just not really wanting to leave. And so finally, uh, the messengers just take Lot by the hand, his wife by the hand, his daughters by the hand, and lead them out of Sodom so that they aren't destroyed. There are loved ones that we have that are close to us that need us to just reach out and take them by the hand and lead them out. And then he says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now, our flesh is our corrupt human nature. 
And the thing is, is that we should abhor those parts of our nature that are against God. We should abhor the worldliness that uh, so easily can overtake any of us. And actually, he's talking in context of whenever we're taking these, trying to reach in and pull these out of the worldliness, that we should be careful that we don't become stained or polluted by the things that they are participating in while we're trying to pull them out. Now then, the epistle of Jude closes with this glorious benediction that has a promise encapsulated in it. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Do you see what's encapsulated right in the middle of there? He is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, glory, blameless with great joy. When it comes that time when we stand before the Lord, if we have held on to our holiness, if we have endeavored to live holy lives before God, stayed as clean as we can before him by confessing and by growing in him and by being obedient to him, whenever we stand there, we're not going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these glorious things in your name? Instead, He's going to see you and he's going to know you and you're going to see him and you're going to know him and be known. And he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.